Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Is that great news or what? Yes, it is. Wow, and the Lord has heard our prayer. I am greatly encouraged. I know the, um, our, our leadership team was, and, and we hope that th- this blesses you to know that God does have his ear wide open to our requests and that we, we bring them to him. And um, there have uh, been great contributions made through prayer. And um, I have no way of, uh, of telling, um, you know, to what degree um, you guys prayed. But I'm, I know that there was a lot of initiative that was taken just to cry out to the Lord. And I imagine that only intensified as this 8.30 service started. You know, it was like waking up at some, some of the moms getting up with, at 6 o'clock uh, on Sunday morning with the kids. It's a, it's a, a really big deal. And so we're just uh, thankful and um, to find a, a place in Orange County that is available on Sunday mornings to lease is nearly impossible. It is nearly impossible. There are so many churches, smaller churches especially, that are looking and they share space. And what a blessing that we will be the primary lessee and we'll be able to determine how the space gets utilized. And there is not necessarily any uh, sharing that um, is already in place that we have to uh, jump over. So we'll be able to update you more um, as Francis mentioned in second hour. And I just wanted to share on a personal note what really encourages me. And yes, we are in an industrial place. We're a commuter church with our chain behind us and the airport next to us. And we're getting rid of that. We're taken off the airport, okay? But we're, we're going to a place where there's still going to be the train. But right across the street, literally, from the church is where people will board the train. And that sign that's out in front of the building that says Cornerstone Bible Church is going to be taken down and it's going to be put up over there. And it's been estimated that between the, the, the train traffic, the foot traffic, and the car traffic, that there's some 20,000 uh, views. And I don't know if this was daily or weekly because daily just kind of frightened me. But uh, I was like, that's a lot. 20,000 views. And whether it's weekly or daily, people will see our church. And to have Fullerton College uh, literally just north of us, to have uh, the train station so close by, I, I really am greatly encouraged that God is, is putting us in, in a place where I think that we can be greater stewards of the ministry that's been entrusted to us, right? We've been entrusted with uh, the ministry of reconciliation. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We've been entrusted with... Um, uh, uh, discipleship and, and allowing people to, to grow so that God can receive more and more glory. And he's bringing us to a place where I really believe, at least for the next couple years, the sky will, will be the limit. And we'll see what he does and um, how he uses our ministry efforts there and to what capacity. Well, I read a story this week and it reminded me of last week's message, so I wanted to start out our time by reading it to you. It says, a man in Long Beach, California, went into a chicken franchise to buy lunch for himself and his lady friend, and he took his order of chicken and drove to a nearby park for a picnic. And when he opened the box, he was surprised to see money instead of chicken. The manager kept the earnings in a box, a chicken box, to prevent robbery, but inadvertently handed the wrong box to this unsuspecting patron. The man quickly returned his picnic basket of cash to the store manager. The manager was elated. He said, stick around. I want to call the newspaper and have them take your picture. You're the most honest guy in town. The man protested such an idea of publicity, and when the manager pressed him for a reason, he ashamedly said, I'm married, and the woman that I'm with is not my wife. Integrity is much more than superficial honesty. It is a holistic commitment that directs every area of our lives. And for those who weren't with us last Sunday, we continued our study in Titus together in chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, and we spent the bulk of our time looking at verse 6. 
And we talked about what it meant to be above reproach. And after that, we spent the remainder of our time talking about what it means to be the husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man. And I don't know about you, but I'm quickly beginning to see that these uh, qualifications for church leaders truly reflect commands that we're all responsible for, right? This is, this is something that pertains to all of us. It's not just for leadership. And we'll see this proven to be even more true today. The context of our passage is speaking to qualifications of elders in the church. And we've called this series the priority of church leadership. And today's going to be the third part of the series. Last week we shared that even though the focus is specific to leadership, God's Word summons all of us to live lives as believers that are above reproach. We looked at Philippians 1.10, and uh, it calls us to be sincere and blameless. Both of these words reflect what it means to be above reproach. And Christian integrity becomes a priority in our lives when we find out that we're God unveils the truth of the gospel and we see that we're no longer representatives of ourself. We're no longer ambassadors of self, but we're representing the Lord Jesus Christ. We also recall that unlike the potters in the ancient Near East who would sometimes take cracked clay pots and mend them back together with wax, paint over them so that nobody could see, right? And they would be put on the shelf to sell with all the other normal pots until people got them home and they'd heat up and they would melt and break. They had no integrity. They absolutely had no integrity. And as believers, we want our lives to be without wax. We want to honor the Lord with our integrity inside and out. And we don't want to be like the man who in the the story that I read just moments ago, compromised his integrity. He only pretended to have integrity. True integrity comes from being above reproach. And it's grounded in the redemptive grace of the gospel. And that redemptive grace allows us to embrace the transforming grace that God allows us to change. We also heard last week that it's a grace that sustains. It's one that can keep us and guard our lives so that we are above reproach. And what matters to the Lord is that we would represent the integrity of His name and make it our ambition to bring no reproach as we serve Him and His greater purposes. And so let's study Titus together. Please open back up to Titus chapter 1 if you're not already there. And I'm going to read our passage again, starting in verse 4 of chapter 1, which reads as follows. From the New American Standard, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that it will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Over the last two Sundays and now our sermon today, the proposition has remained the same because we've been centered and focused on the same passage. We said that God's People instructed by God's word appoint and assess God's leaders so that the church can be led God's way. In verses 4 and 5, we saw that God's leaders appoint God's leaders so that the church is led God's way. And then in verses 6 through 9, we see 
that God's word assesses God's leaders so that the church is led, led God's way. And this is where we find ourselves in our study. And we're going to wind it back up and we're going to continue in verse 6. In verse 6, we said that God's word assesses a leader's relationship to his own family. And we spent the bulk of our time looking at what it means to be above reproach, to be blameless and consistent in character. Ungodly character is something that repulses people, and spiritual leadership should cause people to rejoice, not be repulsed. We confirm that being above reproach or being blameless is the general overarching qualification that functions really like an umbrella and that the remaining qualifications come underneath this greater or general qualification. And God has the Apostle Paul start with this general qualification before getting even more specific. In verse 6, after the general assessment, God's Word assesses a leader and his relationship to his family first as a husband and then as a father. And we already talked about what it meant um, as a husband of one wife. And we also talked about what it doesn't mean. Okay? It doesn't mean that an elder has to be married. We also said that it doesn't mean uh, or, or it isn't dressing polygamy. And we cross-reference 1 Corinthians 7. And in verse 2, it, it allows us to see that the New Testament certainly forbids the practice of polygamy. But that's not what it's addressing. Stated simply, husband of one wife is a man who abides in marital fidelity and faithfulness. His desire is for his wife and his wife alone. And that gets reciprocated. And I was actually, I can't remember who I was talking to, but we were even, we said one woman man, and then we tried to reverse it and say um, uh, a one man woman. And we just couldn't do it. It just didn't sound right. But it's, it's, it's there, okay? That's what both husbands and wives strive to be. They have a pattern of affection and a desire exclusively reserved for their spouse. There's consistency in their relationship as a result of his leadership and shepherding. And it doesn't mean that there's perfection or sin doesn't come into the relationship. That's not realistic. There is sin, but they have a spiritually healthy pattern of being quick forgiving, quick forgivers and honoring Christ and the gospel in their marriage. I shared this a while back in a sermon that the, the strength of a marriage is determined by how a couple handles conflict. And really, that's true for all relationships. The strength that you, in a relationship that you have with anyone is really based on how you handle conflict. Because conflict's going to come. doesn't matter if you're married, singled, Singled, singled out. If you're single or widowed, God, God um, allows us to see that, that the, the strength of our relationships, that's with each other in this room, is based not on how we can go when things are smooth sailing. Not when, uh, um, you know, the, the service time is when we want it to be and um, this is happening and that's happening. But what, what draws us together and what allows us to, promote unity and and to work together is how do we handle the trials and the challenge that God brings us and I would say as a church I I certainly have been uh, greatly encouraged how we've been able to stay focused and and that's God's goodness God's faithfulness to us to help us stay fixed on him to guide us through tough times again this specific assessment is something that every Christian Mary aspires to. And if you're not married yet, then now is the time to get prepared. And some ask questions like, why, why are we going through exemplary husband? We want you to be prepared. And if I'm a single person, and this is just carryover application from last week, I'm going to look for that godly couple. That's what I would do. I would look for that godly couple. And if I'm a lady, I'm going to look to that wife and I'm going to ask her to disciple me. And if, 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 if I'm a man, I'm a single man, I'm going to look to that uh, godly marriage and I'm going to ask that guy to disciple me. They've got something figured out, right? They understand 
um, where the focus needs to be, again, with God's work in their life. Well, let's move on. Thank you for allowing me to throw in that, uh, that lingering application. Well, let's continue in verse 6, and this is what it has to say. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and then it goes on to say this, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Again, God's words assessing the leadership's relationship, the leader's relationship to first his wife and now to his children. And this portion of this verse is subject to some serious debate amongst theologians. And there's actually some pretty significant implications. At the heart of the debate is this. Does this verse teach that an elder's children have to be, they have to be Christians in order for him to be qualified as an elder? Or is it teaching that his children must be faithful? And by faithful, I'm actually not referencing a believer. I'm actually uh, referencing a, a child that responds in obedience and submission to his parents, but isn't a believer, okay? Versus a Christian child who professes Christ. And since we've already covered that it isn't necessary for a man to be married in order to have children, then it goes without saying that it isn't necessary for an elder to have children in order to be an elder, right? What this verse is teaching is that if he does have children, the Word of God is going to assess his relationship with those children, with his family. And the Greek word translated having is a participle. And here it is used to denote the possession of persons to one who has close relationships. And we see evidence of this all the time when families introduce each other. You know, a couple, you'll go up to another couple and you'll say, Hi, I'm, I'm John, this is Victoria and uh, these are my children, right? Or these are our children. It happens. That's the nature. They, they, the, the, because of the proximity of, of relationship, it denotes possession through that relationship. An important implication here is that Paul is talking about children who are rightfully under the Father's authority in the home. And this was revealed to me as I look closer at this, even this week in the study. We gain insight into this when we see the contrast uh, of this verse with the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, when speaking of an elder, it says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then verse 5, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of the church of God? Management of the household includes management of the children who are still living in the home. And this verse goes on to describe the children. They should be pista tekna. Um, in the Greek, there's two words that are represented here. One is teknon, which is the word that we get children. And the, the other one is pistas, or, which is uh, the word that's uh, represented or translated faith or believing. So when it's neuter or grammatically neuter, it says pista tekna, okay? And we're either talking about, we're going to narrow it in in just a moment, but we're actually talking about what that word pista means. Should pista be understood and translated faithful, as in submissive, or obedient, or should it be translated believing? How should this word be understood? Well, the range of usage varies in the pastoral epistles. And if you go to um, uh, 2 Timothy 2.2, for example, it will use the expression pistoi anthropoi, which is a way of saying faithful men. And Paul was talking to Timothy, and he says, these things that you have heard from me, entrust these things, what? To faithful men, right? And it's translated faithful. It can also mean believing and does on several occasions in the pastoral epistles. In 1 Timothy 6, 2, 
There's another construction that says pistoi despotoi, despotai, which is referring to believing masters, okay? So what is important for us to remember, and this was good for us as we uh, talked about this a few weeks ago in an elders meeting that we were having because we knew that this was, we, I anticipated this coming up and, and uh, we, we talked through it. What singular meaning does God want us to see? Okay, it really doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what John MacArthur, John Piper, John Crick, see that line of preaching, not hardly, but it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what we think as individuals. It's what does God want us to see? What is he trying to communicate to us through his word? And the context here in the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5 provides some important indicators. The qualifying statement that follows in Titus 1.6, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, it emphasizes behavior and seems to explain what it means for techna, children, to be pista, to be faithful. And likewise, in 1 Timothy 3.4, it speaks of the overseer keeping his children under control with all dignity. In both cases, the overseer is being evaluated by the behavior of his children, really the control and conduct of his children. And if that's so, then pista here means faithful in the sense of being submissive or obedient, just as a servant or steward is regarded to be faithful when he carries out the request of his masters. And we see this usage throughout the Gospels as well. The concluding part of the verse in Titus 1.6 literally says, not in accusation of dissipation or rebellious when describing the children. And this statement negatively qualifies pista and indicates what may not characterize faithful children. The Greek word translated dissipation is the same word that actually gets used in Ephesians 5.18 where God's word says, do not get drunk with wine, for this is what? Dissipation, right? It's debauchery. It's, it's, it's wasteful. Don't do it. And therefore, the potential elders' children must not be guilty, guilty of sensuality and, and, and lust and, and drunkenness, as this would bring a reproach on his father as a spiritual leader in the church. And I think we all get that. The second word used is translated undisciplined or disobedient, rebellious. What must not characterize the children of an elder is immorality and undisciplined rebelliousness. And if the children are still at home and under his authority, this is what is being emphasized. As one commentator shared, Paul is not asking any more of the elder and his children than is expected of every Christian father and his children. However, only if a man exercises such proper control over his children may he be an elder. Okay? And this is important for us to see this distinction, not only as it, re as it relates to um, parenting, but as it relates to all the qualifications, right? I, I think we're all on board together, and we understand that they apply to all of us, yes? Right? And that's why I'm going to, even in the sermon today, I'm going to do my best to go to New Testament commands when talking about these qualifications that affirm that. They, they, they apply to us. These are characteristics of the Christian life. These are qualities of the character that Christians are to have. Well, as an elder team, we had some really good fellowship during our study of these passages, really enjoyed our time together, and we actually used a 35-page document that really spells out the difference between these, these, um, these two views. And I, I'm reluctant to call them opposing views, because in the end, both camps are just trying to be people who want to honor God's Word. They just are trying to get it right, okay? And in the end, as an elder team, we found ourselves favoring the faithful children position, 
Yet I think in fairness, we could appreciate some of the aspects of the believing children position as well. But my reason for sharing this document is if you're somebody who aspires to the office of elder or you're thinking that God might lead you in that direction or you're aspiring to the office really of deacon or serving in any leadership capacity, I want to encourage you to read through this document. I want to encourage you to email any one of us as an elder so we'll just send it to you. Or maybe we just go ahead and just send it out for everybody because there's no harm in doing that either. And that you would have an opportunity to read, to read through it. It's important that you would be settled when it comes to God's Word and assessing this important qualification for your own life. And as I shared in the message last Sunday, elders serve together in plurality but stand alone as individuals when it comes to their qualifications. And since it's possible that one's man, uh, one man's conscience could believe that he's, he's qualified because he has faithful children, maybe they're not old enough to understand the gospel, maybe they're not old enough to believe, it could be possible, right, that another man's conscience is just like, no way, I think it's believing. I think they need to be believing. And I'm not going to consider being an elder until my kids profess faith. It is possible, by the way, for elders to serve on the same elder team and hold to different positions, okay? Because it's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of personal conviction when it comes to qualifications. The reality is that so long as both sides remain faithful to their position, that Christ's name is protected, which is the end goal and the purpose for the qualifications. And certainly another point of application features the impact and importance of us being faithful as parents to our children. That there's contingencies that, that are related directly to future church leadership for us all. Children and parents. Okay? So much so that if there's ever a breakdown in, in a marriage or a family, one of the first steps, and um, we've never talked about this as an elder team, but I, I'm, I'm certain just knowing my brothers that we would be like-minded in this regard, that if, if, if a marriage is broken down, one of the first things we, we, we have you do is, is step down from ministry so that you can focus on that. If there's struggle in parenting, one of the first things we want to do is have you step down so you can focus in on that child that might really need that additional attention that you would normally be giving in marriage. In fact, I think John Piper himself even took a season in his own life when his marriage and family, there was just a tough season, and he stepped back away from the ministry. And this honors Christ so much because in essence, what a person says when they're doing this is that Christ's name means more than their ministry contribution, which is always the case. Always. As a pastor shared, all true spiritual leadership begins at home. Our sermon point that we're focusing on today, God's Word assesses God's leaders so that the church will be led God's way. In verse 6, we saw that God's Word assesses a leadership's relationship to his family, a leader's relationship to his family, first as a husband, then as a father. And now in verse 7, we're going to see this. God's Word assesses a leader's relationship to his own character. Verse 7 reads as follows. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Normally, I'm not too big of the phrase being a knothead, but in this instance, it's probably a good thing if, if, if you're a knothead. Um, here, an elder is given five descriptions of character and informed on what not to be. Our verse starts out by reiterating the umbrella qualification of being above reproach, but the difference this time is the Holy Spirit led Paul to provide a little extra oomph when he was writing it. It includes the Greek verb day, which is translated must be. 
And it's a present active verb, so it can be translated, make it your habit, or constantly be above reproach, or constantly be blameless, or make it your habit to be without accusation. It also includes the, the phrase, as God's steward. And the Greek word originally referred to the manager of a household or estate. And this expression should remind us that the church does not belong to the overseer, but it is the precious possession of God himself who has entrusted it into the overseer's care. And more than this, the steward himself is called God. God's in this, in this passage. Both the church and the overseer are God's possession. And as elders, we're going to stand before God, holy God, and give an account for how we were stewards of this church. How we were stewards of you. How we were stewards of the resources that were entrusted to our care. And it's the very reason we're desperate for your prayers. It's the very reason that we beg you to pray for us on a regular basis. As you think of the church, as you think of our people, as you think of us as leaders, that you would lift us up regularly. I think you see that we're pretty simple guys. Nothing, nobody at our uh, elder table is uh, claiming to have profound life experience and, and wisdom and, hey, just follow me. I got this all figured out, okay? We're, we're all set. We're, we're leaning on the Lord. We're trusting the Lord. And you guys have been so patient with us. We've had to endure things. We're, we're, in many ways, we're still even getting to know each other and how we think. We're coming across even passages like today where we're talking about matters like this. We're learning and growing. You've been so patient with us, just even as it's related to the building. And we, we thank you for that. We're encouraged by that. After all, we're, we're on the same ministry team together. What will give an impression that we're not on the same team and what would reflect poor stewardship in ministry is if we're self-willed, if we're quick-tempered, if we're intoxicated ex excessively, if we're pugnacious and focused on sordid gain. God calls us not to have any of these things associated with our character. And so we want to zoom in on these qualifications, or should I say disqualifications. An elder, overseer, pastor cannot be self-willed. In the Greek, this word is describing someone who's stubborn and arrogant. It is a man who obstinately maintains his position or asserts his own rights and is reckless of the rights, feelings, and interests of others. And the only other time that this is actually used in the New Testament is in 2 Peter 2.10, and it's actually being used to describe false teachers, and it says that they're daring and that they're self-willed. Alexander Strzok explains this qualification in his book, Biblical Eldership. To be self-willed, quote, to be self-willed or arrogant is the opposite of being gentle or forbearing, which is one of the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. A self-willed man wants his own way. He is stubborn, arrogant, and inconsiderate of others' opinions, feelings, or desires. A self-willed man is headstrong, independent, self-assertive, and ungracious, particularly towards those who have a different opinion. A self-willed man is not a team player, and the ability to work as a team is essential to leadership. End quote. Maybe you've heard this expression, the world's smallest package is the person wrapped up in themselves. One commentator, when studying this passage, shared, the only one a self-willed man cannot conquer is himself. He's the captain of his own ship. It's his sea. It's his agenda. Okay? Author G.W. Target tells, and this is a classic story many of you may have heard this before, but it really is a classic story of being selfish and self-willed. It's a story of two seriously ill men who occupy the same hospital room, and the man by the window was propped up for an hour each day to drain fluid from his lungs. The other man spent his entire time on his back. The two men enjoyed each other's company and talked for hours about all different types of subjects. During the one hour that the one man sat up in his bed, he would describe all the things he saw to his bedfast roommate 
as he looked out the window. Each day, great detail would be given to the activities going on outside. He described the park with its lovely lake and grand old trees. He would tell of children playing and lovers walking through the park outside. One day, a beautiful parade went by. And even though he couldn't hear the music, the man on his back could see it all in his mind, and his roommate gave exquisite details. But it seemed so unfair. Although he enjoyed listening to his friend describe the sights, he began to crave the view for himself. His desire for the bed by the window grew into a consuming thought. It even kept him awake at night. Then in the darkness, one sleepless night, his roommate began to cough. He was choking on the fluid in his lungs and desperately groping for the button to call for help. The covetous roommate could have pushed his own button to summon a nurse, but instead he watched the old man die. The following morning, the nurse discovered the man's death and the standard procedure was carried out and the body was removed. The surviving man the surviving man then asked to be switched to the bed to see out the window. At last, he was getting what he felt he deserved. Painfully and slowly, he struggled to prop himself up for the first look out at the park. To his shock, the window looked outside to a blank wall of the building next door. When someone's life is self-willed, it is self-filled and their lust for their own desires will consume them so much that it can lead to the unthinkable happening it really can grievous sins start in the heart of a self-willed person and the gospel call the christian life is to pick up our cross daily and to deny ourselves and to follow him Only through the power of the cross are we enabled to repent of self and being self-willed. Only then can we truly see the desire that's spelled out for us by the Lord in Philippians 2, 3, and 4 as we look to Christ as our ultimate example. To do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility of mind to regard others as more important than ourselves. And if this is the basic call of the Christian life, and it calls us not to be self-willed, certainly it must characterize the leadership in the church. And so this hits home. I have an exercise for you this week, okay? You ready for this? Exercise this week. We're going to meet at Crunch Fitness in Placentia, okay? Just kidding, okay? Not that type of exercise. Spiritual exercise. It's called 15 Ways to Die. 15 Ways to Die. And then over uh, 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 the course of this week, I want you to, in a, a quiet time, in time before the Lord, I want you to sit down and I want you to write down 15 ways in which you are self-willed. In which your focus is on self. And this is easy to do. I, I did it in less than five minutes um, th- this, this last week. You, you, you can do this. And all you got to do is start with the, wor- uh, the word my, okay? And before you know it, you'll be writing my breakfast, my schedule, my plans, my this, my that. I mean, it just, it just spews out. And then after you've completed a list of 15, this is what I want you to do. I want you to, to, to renew your mind. I want you to go to Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, and I want you to meditate on that passage. And then I want you, after you meditate and you, you look at what God's Word is saying to your heart in that passage, I want you to go back to that list. And I want you to see what God does. I, I, I want this to be practical. I want you to examine your heart. We're, we're, we're all self-willed, are we not? We are. We're all self-willed. But I do need to warn you. There's a good chance that you're not even going to make that list this week. Because 
our selfishness and our sin nature and our self-willingness wants to protect itself at all costs. It wants to guard itself. It doesn't want to be encroached upon at all. It resists the Spirit's work to change. Okay? Just want to share that warning. Well, we're never going to finish verse 7 at this pace. But some of these that follow will be quick, okay? And that was punny on purpose. Look at the next qualification listed. An elder overseer pastor must not be quick-tempered. There it is. And here we have what's called a hapax legomena. The Greek word is orgilos, and it means inclined to anger or angry. Anger in this instance is referring to a sinful response of the flesh. Stress, conflict, disagreements happen in the church, and the elder must be a man of self-control. Someone who is quick-tempered gets angry very easily. Their temper flares with disagreements or letdowns. He has no control of himself. He is easily offended and set off like a firecracker. And we hear this description of people who are characterized by being quick-tempered, right? They have a short fuse. The irony is that the very character of God, which is opposite, is to be long-suffering. And it literally means slow burning. It's a slow burning fuse. God is long-suffering, and the wisdom of His Word allows us to see the practical effects. Just listen to these Proverbs. Actually, just turn there with me real quick. You know where Proverbs is, right? In the middle of your Bible. Let's turn there. Proverbs 14.29. Just turn there real quick. Proverbs 14.29 says this, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. So true. Proverbs 15.18, the next chapter. Let's turn the page. Proverbs 15.18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Beautiful, practical Proverbs that help us see this. And then I want to finish with my favorite, which is Proverbs 16.32, which says this, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. It's that powerful. It has that kind of impact in the church. It has that kind of impact in your family. It has that kind of impact in all relationships. Work, gym, anywhere. It's got more power than capturing a whole city. And someone has aptly said it's wise to remember that anger is just one letter short of danger. And many people in the room are familiar with the name Alexander the Great. But what you may not know about the man who conquered the modern world is that he was never able to conquer his quick temper. On one occasion, Cletus, a childhood friend and a general in Alexander's army, became drunk and insulted the leader in front of his men. And Alexander became enraged and hurled a spear at Cletus, intending merely to scare him. Instead, the spear killed Alexander's lifelong friend. Remorse engulfed Alexander as he assessed the destruction of his uncontrollable anger. How short is your fuse? How short is your fuse? Maybe you don't throw spears like Alexander the Great did, but maybe you're quick to throw words back. If you were like my mom growing up, she threw shoes, okay? So it was like she just would start literally looking for shoes, like something, something to throw. She had to find something. She found it. I told you to get up there and clean your room. Turn that TV off. Whew, throw the shoe, right? 
We knew she meant business. Okay? That's the flesh. That's the desire. We want to throw words. We want to throw objects. But God wants us to throw ourselves at His feet and ask for mercy and for grace to be long-suffering and patient just like He is. Great anger leads to great danger. And I shared this last week, and I'm always pointing back to last week, and I'm building bridges because we're going somewhere, right? The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. James 1.20 And there's no place for God's leaders and God's people to be quick-tempered. Rather, like the Holy One who called us, we want to renew our minds to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. God's Word assesses God's leaders, and certainly one way that it does this is by assessing a man's relationship to his own character. An elder pastor overseer must display consistent character. He cannot be self-willed. He cannot be quick-tempered. And third, he cannot be addicted to wine. In the Greek, this word literally means drunken. And so the ESV translation says, he must not be a drunkard, which the NASB translates addicted to wine. And the idea is this, it's lingering over alcohol or drinking to excess and becoming drunk. And I want you to see this. There's some serious overlap between these character traits. Many self-willed and quick-tempered people resort to alcohol to remove the problems of life, right? Do they not? Alcohol is known for being a great remover And just listen to this description. Alcohol will remove stains from clothing. This is quite correct. And just to prove its amazing versatility, it will also remove winter clothes, spring clothes, and summer clothes from a man, his wife and children, if used in sufficient quantity. Alcohol will also remove remove furniture from the home, rugs from the floor, food from the table, lining from the stomach, vision from the eyes, and judgment from the mind. Alcohol will also remove reputations, good jobs, good friends, happiness from a child's heart, sanity, freedom, man's ability to adjust and to live with his fellow man, and even life itself. As a remover of things, alcohol has no equal. Author unknown. The leadership qualification isn't prohibiting the use of alcohol. But the Holy Spirit did lead Paul to record this so that it would serve as a warning as God's Word assesses a leader's qualification for ministry. And certainly the abuse of alcohol would keep a leader from being above reproach. And it's a verse we've already mentioned. Ephesians 5.18 confirms that drunkenness is a sin and it describes it as dissipation or a waste. Not just for church leaders, but for all believers. An elder pastor overseer must have consistency in their character. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine. Fourth, he cannot be pugnacious. And here's a word we really don't hear. You don't hear pugnacious. Okay? You know, outside of reading it in the scriptures, I can't remember even the last time that I've um, even heard a person who uses a lot of words, you know, one of those high social wordy people, one of those garrulous people, one of those convivial, loquacious people that I'm talking about. You know, they just pull out these, these words and they'll pull out, and you're like, pugnacious. Yeah, I'm embarrassed to ask him what it means. But um, it literally means the word striker. He must not be a bully. He must not get ready to box when he is upset if and when people disagree with him. When someone is pugnacious, There's an aggression, a reviling when they don't get what they want. And this overlaps a great deal with the first character trait, not to be self-willed. In my memory, key for remembering this is pretty simple and pugnacious. Many of you know that we have a dog. uh, Her name's Maya, and she's a pug, okay? And she's relatively a, a sweet, great little pet, okay? Sheds a lot, but we deal with it. But our pug can be pugnacious. And we've had to tell our children about this. If Maya's ever chewing a bone or eating her food in a kennel, we have warned our children explicitly not to put their hands in her food dish or try to pull the bone out of her mouth. 
she will bite you. And so it is true with a pugnacious person. When they have their teeth sunk into something, when they have their way set in their mind, and you are going to try, my friend, to, to offer some counsel, or have we considered it this way, or might this work best, and Arf! wow, that's pugnacious. That's it. How wrong would it be for a man of God to act like this? And even 2 Timothy 2.24, which is instruction for us all, says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And ironically, this verse is in the context of providing instruction for Christians sometimes being pugnacious is revealed when discussing our theology. Are you pugnacious or quarrelsome in your theology when discussions take place with other people? Are you quarrelsome with your friends or family members just in general? When it comes to your hills to die on, are you able to dialogue over these in a non-pugnacious manner. In next hour, Francis is going to uh, teach the evangelism training that's going to talk about how to handle re- rejection, what to do when, when they don't respond. Okay, And certainly, responding pugnaciously is not going to promote gospel effectiveness. I think we get that. Another application is that it's not just talking about biting or striking, but it can be any form of intimidation or manipulation. God's leaders cannot be characterized by this, and God's people will be a great testimony to the world when we don't respond pugnaciously like the world does. The last qualification in verse 7 says this, an elder, pastor, overseer must not be fond of sordid gain. The Greek adjective is a compound adjective made up of two words, shameful and gain. A man of God cannot be characterized by making shameful gains. The NASB translates it fond of sordid gain. The ESV translates it greedy for gain. And here's my favorite translation in the King James, given to filthy lucre. Sounds like it needs a Given to filthy lucre. I don't know why, where that accent comes from. It sounds like it should just have an accent. In, in 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, the Holy Spirit led Paul to use a different construction, which is translated free from the love of money. What is the point? Money cannot and should not be something that controls a believer. Greed and mishandling money is something that the world is notorious for, and it's the reason why. We can talk to... Adam and, or talk to Tony Bacanas because they, they understand that our insurance rates and premiums are so high. Why? Because there's so much corruption. There's so much greed that's taking place. It's, it's commonplace. A wealthy but eccentric man was uh, dying and he was on his deathbed and he called three of his closest friends and he told them he disagreed with the conventional belief that you can't take your money with you when you die he said i'm taking mine (laughs) he pulled out three envelopes and handed each of his three friends an envelope he explained how the envelopes contained thirty thousand dollars in cash he wanted each man to throw an envelope in when they lowered his casket at the funeral all three men did as their dead friend had requested upon returning from the cemetery the first friend's conscience got the best of him and he confessed to the others and said I needed some money for my student loans, so I took out 10 grand and threw 20 grand into the grave. The second friend then came clean and admitted taking $20,000 for costs, uh, for health costs because his parents were ill. The third friend was appalled at their dishonesty. He privately said, I'm ashamed of you, gentlemen. I threw in a check for the full amount. God's leaders and God's people should be characterized by good stewardship and being free of any shameful gains. And the Lord provides many examples for us. But we saw it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, did we not? 
We saw it in the heart of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. Did we not? Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its outcome. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. 1 Timothy 6. Actually, just turn there real quick, just so I want you to see this. It's God's Word. This is um, important that we see it. I've tried to do better on that. I know in the past with cross-references, I haven't given us time to go there, and I really need to do a better job at that. It's something I'm working on, because we we need to see what God's Word says, and this is what it has for us in 1 Timothy 6, 8-11. If we have food and covering... With these things we shall be content, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. The call of the Christian life is to glorify God by living lives that are above reproach. And this is true for church leaders. And as we've seen in the commands of Scripture, this applies to every person who claims the name of Christ. May we all strive to honor these qualifications by being true knotheads. Okay? Let's be knotheads together. Not being self-willed, not being quick-tempered, not being addicted to wine, not being pugnacious, and not being controlled by the love of money. Please pray with me, and then our worship team is going to come up and lead us in a short response. Gracious Father, as we bow our heads after receiving what your word of truth had for us this day, I pray that your work will now begin. Oftentimes, I know it's the temptation of my own heart, even after I hear a message that I'm so quick to forget, so quick to move on to the next thing. What's equipping hour have? What's fundamentals of the faith have? And those things are important, but yet you want us to take care of business want us to acknowledge that your word is calling us to change. Have your way with us this week. Help us to write down 15 ways to die. Help us to fight self. Help us to fight our selfishness. Father, for convicting us in areas where we need to repent. 
Thank you for allowing your faithfulness and your instruction to us to be a fragrant aroma, pleasing to your sight. Lord, we thank you for this time to gather. We ask that you would bless the remainder of our morning. I pray that you would bless my brother Francis as he teaches, that you would also bless the ministry efforts in the FOF class, and that you would receive all the glory for what's taking place. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.